listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to evolutionary biologists Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. The fact is, if we allow evolution to continue to play its game, lineage against lineage competition, it will end in disaster. We are too powerful and we are too interconnected and there are too many of us consuming too much. Brett and Heather shared their thoughts on what happens when human evolution collides with an increasingly hypernovel modern world, how a greater understanding of biology can help us develop technologies that benefit humanity, and how the ability to adapt is our species' best tool for creating a sustainable and abundant future. Your new book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, attempts to understand the great human mystery. But what is so special about human beings? In other words, what is the human niche? Well, the fact is, if we talk about virtually any other species that you could name, and we ask what its niche is, the form of the creature and its behavior is tightly correlated. And it will typically, we will be able to describe the niche in in some sort of proper ecological terms. You literally can't do it for human beings. Human beings have done so many different things across history and prehistory. And simultaneously, we do so many different things, everything from hunting marine mammals to uh, harvesting nests from high inside caves to make soup. There's a tremendous variety of behavior, and a lot of it is, it's not that we're just super generalists. We are specialists in many different niches at once. That's a very unique feature of of human beings. And the question is, how do we do it? How is it that without having to become some new form, we're able to completely change what it is we do ecologically? And the answer is, the genome has offloaded a tremendous amount of the work of being human to the software layer. So we uniquely have a mechanism for bootstrapping a new software program that runs on the old hardware and transforms us into something new. Not only, as Brett said, have we transformed what we do across time, but of course we've done so across space as well. We now inhabit every inhabitable place on the planet, six of the seven continents, all of the ones with plants on them. And as we argue with the book, what is the human niche? To answer your question directly, the human niche is niche switching. That is in fact what we do. We are not a match for our environment. We move into environments that we then uh, modify or modify ourselves so that we can inhabit them. But this creates a paradox, doesn't it? A, A human paradox. So could you explain what that human paradox is? Sure. In general, people will be aware that Uh, The jack of all trades is the master of none. This is effectively a principle written into the rules of the universe. And what it says is that specialization is actually the unfortunate downside of becoming very good at something. If you're going to become very good at something, you're going to have to limit how many somethings you do. Except human beings don't. We don't abide by this, even though it is a rule of the universe. What we do is we get the advantages of being a specialist while being able to do many different specialties at once. And the way we break this rule has to do with division of labor. Effectively, individuals are not capable of doing all of the things necessary to sustain a human, but through things that in modern times look a lot like trade, 
we uh, pool together our specialties and we get the benefits of generalism. At the same time, we are highly effective as specialists. Other species that are social get advantages from being social that include things like being able to find mates, being able to collectively source food, being able to be better protected from predators, do vigilance together. We originally got all of those things, but uh, we have transformed the benefits of our sociality into so much more, exactly as Brett is saying. But what you set up in the book is this predicament that we're currently in, this this evolutionary predicament that we currently find ourselves, because the human beings have traditionally been well of Evolved for their environment, but increasingly we're finding that there is some form of evolutionary mismatch. And why has that occurred? Well, we, because we have offloaded so much of what we are mm. into the software layer, because we are evolving in this way that is much faster than would be typical for almost any other organism between generations, I mean, within generations, not just between generations, we are therefore capable of making changes that are too fast even for us to catch up mm. with. We we are transforming the environment in front of us to such a degree that the rate of change itself is outstripping even our ability to keep up with it. Another way to, to see it is there's an, an analogy between evolution and the development of an individual organism. Childhood allows a creature to become good at all the things it needs to be good at in order to be an effective adult. So the threshold exists where the rate of change is so high that the world in which you were a child is not the same world in which you are an adult. When the world changes that rapidly, your development cannot keep up. And that means that evolutionarily, the process through which we adjust our software program so it is constantly in step with our environment, just simply can't keep up with the process. I mean, it, it, it used to be that the body and the environment, they would control the destiny of humanity. But now it feels like humanity really wants to control the destiny, the environment and the body. And as you've described there, the result is this weird sort of mismatch. But can evolution even operate in the age of the Anthropocene? Should we rely on evolution or have we just simply stopped evolving due to science and technology? And shall we accept that now perhaps that humanity should take control over the next stage of its its being. We are evolving. We mm. continue to evolve much less quickly at the genetic level, at the physical level, the physiological and anatomical level, precisely because we have outsourced so much of what we need to the, you know, the so-called extended phenotype. You know, we have monitors outside of us that do the jobs that perhaps 10 or 100,000 years ago or a million or 10 million years ago we would have needed to have on board in our in our wetware. So you know, we continue to evolve, but it is in a way that doesn't look like what other organisms are doing. I would say if you read the book carefully, you will recognize that in some sense, we are obligated by our predicament to rebel against evolution. Mm -hmm. Now, rebelling against evolution is actually fairly easy. The problem is doing it in such a way that you are not outcompeted by other members of your species who have not rebelled is very difficult. And that is the trick that we have to now succeed at. The fact is, if we allow evolution to continue to play its game, lineage against lineage competition, it will end in disaster. We are too powerful and we are too interconnected and there are too many of us consuming too much. If we are to rein in those runaway processes, 
so that an indefinitely large number of human beings can continue to enjoy this planet into the future, it will be because effectively we have taken evolution out of the driver's seat and we have gotten off autopilot. Well, there is that misnomer that evolution is survival of the fittest. It's become a meme. Whether it's correct or not, it's become a meme. But how do we reorient our understanding of what evolution is as a collective process, as something that we do together instead of something that we have to endure individually? You know, One of the problems with that phrase is that it imagines that whoever you are deciding wh whose survival of the fittest is paramount, that you get to look around and decide what fittest is, yeah. right? So everything in evolution is relative. There is no absolute fittest. It is a response to the current environment. Mm. And so the fact that we are changing the environment means that this is an even more intractable problem right now for evolution and for humans, because what would it mean to be fittest yesterday mm. compared to what it would mean to be fittest tomorrow? And, you know, the usual misunderstandings of fitness like wealth or power or strength are clearly at best very simple proxies that don't do a complete job of understanding what fitness would be. The problem in part is actually evolutionary in origin. Mm -hmm. We are built to be focused on our individuality, not because individuality matters to selection, but because in the past there was a limit to the degree to which one could exert any useful influence on things in the environment. So an individual a thousand years ago who was focused on the success of their lineage 20 generations later would have no ability to impact it. We do have the ability to impact things into the distant future. And so we have to, in fact, hack our own psychology and broaden our understanding so it's a better match for what actually matters. And the biggest problem with the, the idea of survival of the fittest is that it is overly focused on individual. The word mm. survival is about remaining alive, which isn't what evolution is about. Selection is actually about the persistence of lineages. And so if we think about our survival or our reproduction, right, there's a lot an individual can do to adjust how well they play the game. If you recognize that as you play the game in this generation, that you are ignoring the fact that future generations are in jeopardy, mm -hmm then you are behaving in a way where your fitness through the narrow modern definition may be high, but ultimately the persistence of your lineage may be a dead end. And that's the problem we have to con confront. That's why the book ends where it does, is that we effectively have to build a new mechanism for being human because sustainability is fundamental to persistence. I mean, it becomes a question of fit for what exactly? And, and Heather, you mentioned their wealth and power. It feels like we constructed these operating systems, these societies, these, as you say in the book, these cultures that we live in, and then we assume that human beings should then almost evolve for the environments of our own creation. I mean, we created a hyper-technologized environment in which we have to endure in the 21st century. We created these market-based capitalist systems through which we operate in the 21st century. And of course, they have some advantages, but we're beginning to find they're incompatible with our human 
biology. And, and the wonderful examples that you give in the book are, are multiple. But I think when we look at the medical system, for example, it does feel like we're weakening our human resilience. And surely the game here shouldn't be about trying to, to deal with this environment that we've created, but it should be about strengthening human resilience. So using that example of the medical system, I mean, what are some of the dangers of muting, for example, pain? Well, the example of pain is an excellent one. Our medical system and indeed uh, our psychologists regard pain as as if it were a malady mm. rather than a signal that something is off. And no doubt there are instances of pain that really have no value whatsoever. Mm. If you're feeling pain in a limb that has been amputated, that pain is not capable of informing you in some good way. And so if we can get rid of that pain, that's positive. But most instances of pain are the result of the fact that you are doing something destructive or something that is risky, and they are a part of a training program. And if you anesthetize the pain, then you in fact make the fundamental problem worse and not better. Mm. So many things look like this. What I think we need to realize is we are not built to be fulfilled or happy, right? Or we're not even built to be correct. All of these things are actually a means to an end. And once you spot the predicament that we're put in by this program, there's a question. Human beings are evolutionarily, we have the same purpose as every other creature that ever evolved. And that purpose, therefore, can't be a very good one. If your purpose is the same as a, a bacterium you know, that might infect your skin, it's not much of a purpose. But the mechanisms that we have at our disposal the fantastic computer that rides around on our shoulder mm -hmm. that is capable of great compassion and insight and producing uh, things of beauty, that computer is marvelous. It's a mismatch, in fact, for this low-level program of what it's supposed to accomplish. And the question is, can we repurpose it? Mm -hmm. Can we say, well, we are human beings. We're not up for a program in which we will do anything to get our genes into the future right? Genocide may be in your evolutionary interest, but it is abhorrent. It is something you are morally required to reject. And so the point is we're not, we shouldn't be on board with evolution's program. We should rebel against it and we should take control of our purpose. In fact, we should write our own purpose and it should be one that is worthy of us. I'd like to just go back to pain for a second mm -hmm. and say that the modern medical response to pain being muted uh, and medical response to physical pain, psychological response to mental pain being very, very analogous, as Brett said, actually is a good indicator of exactly the, the problem that we are describing in the book with regard to questions in science being focused on how versus why. Mm. And an evolutionary approach, the, the evolutionary lens that we are outlining in the book, the evolutionary toolkit, uh, tries to get at the why of humanity. And that's not to say that how, that mechanism-style questions aren't absolutely imperative and necessary and valuable. But when the response to, I'm feeling pain is how do I get rid of the pain that precludes diagnosis 
And diagnosis is the why. And an evolutionary understanding of why are you feeling pain? You know, why do you want to eat sugar? Or why do you want to have sex with a stranger who you mm. find hot? Like all of these things can be understand at the how level. How do I accomplish the thing that I want, right? Or you can understand what it is that you are evolutionarily. You can try to. You can ask the why question and say, why is it that I have this interest in easy sex, in easy sugar, in easy pain relief? And what is it that in the case of pain, for instance, my body or my brain may be trying to tell me that is actually not a good fit for what I am from the environment I'm in? And then you get to sort of a next order, a next level how. How might I change the underlying thing that is causing the pain, for instance, as opposed to how do I simply get rid of the pain? That was really what I got from the book. It was this this call to action to listen to your body, to realize that certain things happen for a reason that you, they shouldn't be approached with either desire or aversion, pain, as you so wonderfully described there, being a, a great example of that. And there is that that idea that human beings are separate from nature. We've come to see ourselves as that. And in actual fact, we're intimately tied to nature. We are of nature. We are from nature. We are we have these bipedal breathing bodies because of nature. But then we also use that argument that we have come from nature as the justification to say that certain forms of human intervention into the body or biology are natural. So what is the right relationship that we should have with this thing called nature? Is nature this othered thing or is nature intimately part of us? Where should we stand with or against nature? It's a question of consciousness. We are, of course, of nature. We come from nature. Mm -hmm. We have the capacity to alter nature. We have the capacity to insulate ourselves from it. And the question is, given our values, what is the best relationship? Mm -hmm. There is no reason to lean in the direction of our nature. If our nature is genocide, that's something to reject. The question is, how can we live in harmony with our environment? The hyper-novelty of our age is causing us to be unhealthy because our relationship to nature and to our nature is haphazard. The point is, if we recognize that mismatch and we decide to go about structuring our environment so they are not at odds with us and therefore structuring our development so that it fits those environments, so that our intuitions will actually lead us to be healthy, then we will be far better off in terms that virtually anyone would recognize. And that really ought to be the objective of the exercise, not toward or away from, but what is best relative to the values that we hold. And the more we understand about what we are, being of and from nature, the better we can understand which of those things are actually immutable and which are not. And so to pick one example that we discuss in fair bit of detail in the book, sex and gender, mm -hmm. right? So we are from at least 500 million years back, possibly closer to 2 billion, a sexually reproducing species with two and only two sexes. Our gametes, our sex cells, eggs and sperm are of two types and only of two types. There are no intermediate forms and there's a lot of good and robust theory explaining why, okay? So pretending that sex is on a spectrum or that you can change your sex is a fool's errand. And it reflects a really fundamental misunderstanding of what our evolutionary history is. 
That said, gender is, and we, Brent and I speak of this in somewhat different terms. He says the software to sex, and I tend to say the behavioral manifestation of sex, <laughs> although in plants that doesn't work, and so his framing works better. So if gender is the behavioral manifestation of sex, it's no less evolutionary, mm. obviously, but it is much more fluid. It is much more labile, and it's not going to be binary. So can we reject traditional gender norms, which were built on call it hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years of evolution? Yeah. Yeah, we can. Can we pretend that male and female aren't real and that men can get pregnant and have babies? Well, we can, but that is delusional. Mm -hmm. Like That makes no sense. It's not reality. But the idea that men can do what has been traditionally women's work, aside from that which is anatomically and physiologically mandated, and that women can do what has traditionally been men's work, while recognizing that some things men are on average going to be better at, and some things women on average are going to be better at, and there will be different interests as well. That is the way forward. Of course, we can reject much of what has been traditional, even if it's been evolutionary. But some of those things, male and female, whether or not you have the capacity to produce sperm versus eggs, that's not going to be changeable. There's a very good example of this in uh, the question of how we engage in family planning. Mm. We all understand that selection is interested in our reproduction. It is therefore somewhat paradoxical to realize how trivially easy it is for people to decide to delay the production of offspring or to forego it entirely. Why is it that we're capable of doing that? Well, the answer is because evolution did not make the production of babies pleasurable. It made sex pleasurable. And technology allows you to divorce the two things from each other, which is actually, in some sense, an extension of something that evolution built into us. Human beings almost uniquely have sex for fun or for bonding. In order for that to happen, the fertility of females has been hidden even from them. Women do not know when in their cycle they are fertile, at least not with precision. Mm -hmm. So selection has produced a creature with uh, a desire for sex when offspring production is not likely. And technology has allowed us to take complete control over this. What it has not allowed us to do is take complete control over sexual desire. And so that mapping, the fact that the production of when you produce children is entirely under your control, but the question of whether you're going to be attracted to somebody is not entirely under your control shows us what the landscape looks like more generally. The fact is we have an arbitrary map of those things that we have control over, don't have control over, or fall somewhere in between. And the important thing is to be cognizant of that arbitrariness and not try to change things that can't be changed. And when something can be changed, try to change it in a direction that's uh, productive and useful. I mean, the question in that case becomes, uh, what is the purpose of having children? Now, that there were practical reasons uh, from a hunter-gatherer standpoint to propagate the tribe, to, to have useful workers on the farm. But in the 21st century, <laughs> are there reasons for children? I mean, if anything, we're, we're constantly told there's an overpopulation crisis. Surely the, the cultural trend towards not having children, maybe there is some evolutionary advantage there, less people to harm the planet, for example. 
So yes, there is. And I know Brett has a lot to say on this, but let me just say first, one of the books that we cite as recommended for the reading, actually, in our childhood chapter is an anthropology of childhood. And the author has gone through and, you know, it's hard to do anthropology of children because most cultures the anthropologists walk into don't reveal what it is that is going on intimately within their families as easily to anthropologists. But he finds that, sure, what you what you just described as sort of a function of children is, is one that shows up in cultures mm-hmm. all over the place. But there are many other understandings. This is just like the overlay of what humans have decided children are for. <laughs> are they to do work on the farm? You know, is it... Yes, there's more mouths to feed, but actually it's more useful. You know, they do more work than they actually require in input, and therefore it's valuable. Are they precious little things to be protected from all trouble until they get to a certain age? There are a number of ways of framing what what childhood is, but that's what it is. It's framing. Mm -hmm. And so the actual you know, the evolutionary reason to have children is larger than that, larger than any anthropological understanding of what children are can afford. Yeah, I'm struggling with this a little bit. I I don't even really understand the question. Uh What is the purpose of children? I mean, the problem is if you're going to pursue it to philosophical bedrock, (laughs) there's no purpose to children. There's also no purpose to living. Uh There's no purpose to taking your next breath. And the fact that all of these claims are simultaneously obviously true and completely unpersuasive is because we descend from a three and a half billion year unbroken lineage of successful reproducers and livers and breathers and all of that. And so the point is we're confused about the underlying philosophy, which is exactly what you would want to be. I don't want to tune into the idea that there really is no point to living at all, that, you know, satisfaction, pleasure, insight, beauty, compassion, that all of these things are really meaningless and uh, obviously ephemeral, right? What I want to do is recognizing that life feels delightful and insight seems worthwhile and compassion is laudable within my framework, I want more of those things. And here's the problem. You die, (laughs) right? And the way we get around that is we produce offspring. And we humans don't just produce offspring like other creatures do. We produce offspring. The most important inheritance they will get arriving outside of the genome right? We have a nifty trick. We take content of our cognitive apparatus and we pass on a small fraction to them. Hopefully we pass on the fraction that is most meaningful, useful, insightful, and your kids don't pick up the stuff about you that's stupid and self-defeating, right? So this is an evolutionary process in the truest sense of the word, in the most important sense of the word. The fact of the edit that happens between generations is how we become better. And in some sense, we moderns don't understand this. Mm. Because our kids are screwed up just the same way we were screwed up. And the reason that we're screwed up, I really believe it's obvious in retrospect, but almost impossible to see until somebody states it, is the reason we're screwed up is entirely about the mismatch between where we live and what we're built for, even at the generational level, right? So if humans have a purpose 
right? If we're to ignore the existential reality of the pointlessness of everything, then our purpose ought to be to provide as many human beings a life that liberates them as we can do, which means making our way of living on the earth sustainable so it can go on indefinitely. But in order for that life to truly be liberating, human beings cannot continue to be at odds with their environment, right? You're ancestors 10,000 years ago wouldn't have been at odds with their environment, which means their intuition of what to do, of how to spend their time, of what to focus on, would have been well-tuned. They would not have felt constantly out of sorts. And so we need to bring into the modern world that same harmony between critter and environment. We need to restore it. We're going to need to build it. And if we do that, then the life we provide to the generations who will experience it will be truly marvelous. It's a serious challenge, though, uh, because whereas, you know, the average person 500 years ago, the work that needed to be done, whether or not they viewed themselves as a scholar, an intellectual philosopher, still largely created physical demands in front of them, mm. right? The work that wasn't their, you know, the, their core reason that they saw themselves on the planet involved things like getting food on the table and either sourcing or perhaps buying or repairing clothes and cleaning them and such. And in modernity, so much of the daily logistical chores of life reflect these abstractions that we know we need to do in order to not have the power turned off on us, in order to get the washing machine fixed because customer service it didn't show up when they said they would, and so now we're stuck on some infernal phone tree, right? Now, these things have no reflection in physical reality. They're completely banal and, frankly, utterly hateful. Mm. And so, you know, the, the sort of the physical banal work of yesteryear brought with it, as much as it was, yes, banal, a reward in that you knew what you'd accomplished it. Mm. And you could see as you were going forward, I am likely to actually get this thing done, or I'm likely to be able to need help, or I'm likely to need help doing it, as opposed to so much of the work now that is in virtual space, that is in abstract space, for which it is really hard to figure out where you are in the process, <laughs> and whether or not you will be successful, and even sometimes whether or not you have been successful. I mean, this, this is part of the existential problem of today. Well, it becomes a question of what is the environment? I mean, we're so divorced from what we understand as the environment, the outside, the out there, the thing under the sky. Our environment that we live in is one that we've constructed for ourselves, whether it's our, our physical homes with roofs and artificial lights or, or these technologized environments where we're interacting through these shiny glowing rectangles that we have in front of us even, even right now or whether this capitalist environment of markets and in commerce that require us to act and operate in certain ways. I mean, we've created the prison and then put ourselves into it. And by being in the prison, all we're learning is how to be more effective criminals. And that's driving a lot of our desire about how we think about the future and what the future human might look like. The word that I was searching for in the book was cyborg. Should we take full control of our evolution? Should we take seriously this idea that we could become intelligent 
designers? And, and should we start constructing our bodies for these environments? Or, and I think you tease it in the book, or should we realize that because we constructed these environments, it doesn't necessarily make them good environments to be in. There's a way in which we can change the environment, have a more embodied connection with the out there, and not drive these narratives whereby the only way we can be competitive in the market is to implant a chip on our heads so that we can compete with AI. The problem is that the constructed environment has an almost totally arbitrary relationship with it, <laughs> yeah. right? And so what you're saying is right, but you're focused on the part of it that just sucks, right? <laughs> right, the part of it that you know isn't working because, uh -huh. you know, you're doom scrolling on your phone. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got the phone in your hand. It really couldn't possibly be a more concentrated piece of technology. And some person or collection of people who you will never meet has figured out how to addict you to drugs that are produced inside your mind rather than fed to you through some other mechanism, right? This is a glaring defect. On the other hand, were you to hop on your bicycle and maybe there's a beautiful rails to trails near you and you could fly almost like a bird through some beautiful landscape and be freed to think really remarkable thoughts because what you were doing didn't require your conscious mind. It just required you to do something that was almost effortless. That's the opposite, mm -hmm. right? highly technological. I mean, the bike is such an improbable device that it doesn't even have an inventor. It was hundreds of years of little insights stacked on top of each other before Dunlop finally added the inflatable tire, which made it practical, right? Mm -hmm. That object frees you. It is the opposite of your cell phone. It does not enslave you. It's liberating. So what I would argue is we are faced with a question. Is there a mechanism for just simply filtering the technology, the built environment that we encounter, so that it's all like the bicycle and not at all like the dopamine traps that arrive through your phone, right? Our, I mean, what we're really discovering is that if you ask the market, well, what do we want? It'll give you both things, right? And the ones that will dominate your environment will be the ones that make the biggest profits, right? They will drive out the others, and so the world begins to look like more and more duplicates of your phone, right? The world is less and less hospitable to people on bicycles. So we have to choose. We have to go off autopilot, and we have to say, how do we leverage technology so that it liberates us to do the stuff that matters rather than allow it to enslave us? That's really the choice. I don't think it's as hard as it sounds, right? Really spotting the problem is the first step and then saying, well, given that we understand that we are partially slaves and partially liberated, can we choose? Mm. So here's another comparison, if I may. I hope I'm not talking out of school here. But before we went on air here, I said that I had remembered so fondly the conversation that you, Luke, had with Brett on stage in 2018 in London. And you said you weren't sure that we would remember and of course we both did, not only because you're actually just a terrific interviewer and it was a wonderful event, but because we were there in person, mm. right? Because the entire event was embodied. 
right? And, you know, this conversation is terrific. And I think in part, it is easier and warmer precisely because we have interacted in person before, albeit three years ago, three and a half years ago, and, you know, on one night in, uh-huh. you know, and at one event. But it was preceded by cocktails, which of course is also enhancing. And it was, the conversation itself was wonderful, but it was in person. Mm. So what all is is gained by having a live audience of people responding in real time to a conversation between the two of you? We don't know all of the answers to that. We may at some point. That is the promise of science. Mm. But you know, good scientists recognize that while we aspire to understand everything that is true, we may never get there, and we may also never know exactly how close we are. But it is also true that there are things that are ineffable about physical experience in real space with one another. Smells and just perturbations in the air that are not necessarily things that are measured and are not necessarily what we are focusing on. And because they're not easily measured, they don't tend to be what's tracked, mm. but that doesn't make them any less valuable. Yeah, it's a, it's a marvelous example, actually, because if you think about it, on the one hand, it was an ancestral kind of a gathering, right? People face to face, right? <laughs> on the other hand, we were there by virtue of an airplane. Exactly. And mm. uh, I believe we signaled an Uber and, <laughs> right. uh, you know, the beer was made with a an ancient technology of you know using creatures to make alcohol out of and you were miked sugars and, you know, and uh, yeah. uh, we were miked i remember several of the conversations <laughs> after the event but the point is it is neither one nor the other yeah. it was yes. very natural in one regard it was technologically enhanced in other regards but it worked. And that's really the point. It was a modern campfire, which is what we call for in the book, mm-hmm. right? It was a kind of modern campfire. It was a modern campfire. And I think really you could understand the book as a caution about technological progress, mm-hmm. but that's really not what it is. It's really an argument for renegotiating the deal that we have with modernity at every level. Well, it's an argument for integration, realizing what's been left in the standing reserve what potentially we have to lose not just to not just to gain and to return to what we have to lose to understand why it was historically or traditionally so important and you look at some of that ancient wisdom in the book and it was so wonderful to see you both end up with a chapter that was looking so beautifully at the nuances of how things like uh, ritual can actually inform us on how to live as human beings shouldn't be re- rejected so so easily as we do. And, and religion as well. Religion is, a, as you say in the book, a useful way to efficiently encapsulate past wisdom. And the problem with re-engaging with things like nature and past wisdom is they're not very useful to the market. You know, they're not very useful to extractive corporate capitalism. If anything, they may actually go against the growth imperative, at least the economic growth imperative. The question is then, how do we amplify the advantages of re-engaging with things like chronobiology instead of looking towards cybernetics as the way in which we're going to deal with our new technologized environment? How do we realize that in actual fact, human beings don't need to strap on tools and technologies. They have innate superpowers. And those superpowers we understood through things like taboos, through relationships with lunar cycles and the moon. You know, we we know intuitively these things, and yet we've chosen to amplify scientific knowledge over intuitive knowledge, and yet both have extreme 
values. So I guess, how do we integrate the two? First thing is the toughest, which is compelling people that the ill at ease sense, the dysfunction is not normal, right? This is hard in some sense because of the Steven Pinker problem, right? <laughs> Pinker is not wrong that we live in the best of times, right? We do. Uh -huh. We are also in tremendous danger. We are living longer, but we are not healthy, right? We are out of sorts. And so the recognition, what I think most people, and in fact, you'll find entire fields compelled by the idea that somehow selection has failed, mm. right? The entire field of orthodontia is founded on the idea that there's something about our genes that doesn't get our teeth into the right place. It's total nonsense, okay? That's not what happened. What happened is we changed the way we interact with food as children, mm -hmm. and our jaws don't get the right physical feedback for our teeth to come in in the right place. Our jaws literally collapse, and then we move the teeth separate from the jaws, and we get them into an organization that looks right, but it can't be right because the jaw still isn't the right shape, right? So the point is, look, the right thing to do about the fact that your teeth aren't in the right place might be to move them, but the more important thing is not to do that to another generation of kids. But you can't even make the argument because it would require the experts, the orthodontists, to admit that what we are doing that requires them to move our teeth, their entire industry, is built on our feeding children the wrong stuff. Giving kids hard things to chew on increases the chances that their jaws will become strong, their musculature will become strong, and that their jaws will have space for their teeth to grow into. And it's not even just their jaws. It has to do with sleep apnea, potentially ADHD. Lots of things are downstream for this from the single error. But the point is, if you don't know very much about creatures, because mm -hmm. let's say you're not a biologist who has spent lots of time with them, you may think selection is a crude process that just isn't very effective at making a really excellent critter. And that's why you're constantly out of sorts with your environment. Selection just didn't do the job perfectly. Nope. This is developmental error. And the fact is your ancestors were beautifully designed mm -hmm. for their environment. So once you spot that, right? Once you recognize that the out-of-sortsness is something that we continue to build into each new generation, and the question is, is there a way to just simply undo that process so that we can again feel like critters that are well designed for our environment? And what would that feel like? I would just point out, let's take something that isn't totally natural. Let's take the stairs in your house, right? Walking downstairs is a really complex problem. Like ask a robot engineer about the problem of getting a robot to properly walk downstairs and they'll give you an earful. It's very difficult to get a robot to walk down the stairs. But you're a robot. You walk down the stairs all the time and you don't give it a second thought. I mean, when's the last time you fell down the stairs? Uh, I live in a ground floor apartment, so I haven't had the no. opportunity to fall downstairs, but it's, right. been a long, it's been a long, long time, Brett, and since I uh, tripped I, down long, some stairs. Yeah. I, I walk downstairs every day. I literally have never fallen down, uh -huh. okay? And I don't think about it, right? My point is the stairs are completely intuitive, in part because the stairs are no different than the stairs I grew up with, mm. right? Right, but to this point, and I, I'm not sure exactly where you're going, so I'll let you finish <laughs> it in a moment, but to this point, you know, I also grew up with stairs, and I shot up quickly at some point and became sort of athletic 
but I was gangly there for a moment. And I started reliably falling upstairs because I wanted to take them three stairs at a time and race up the stairs. And I would, you know, one time in 10 face plant on the stairs and they were carpeted and it was fine and I was fine. But it's not intuitive until it's become intuitive, right? No. That is what development is about. That is what the learning process is about. Right. But think about this. It was intuitive to you to fall up the stairs every time, which is definitely the better direction. It's Ask true. anyone who's fallen downstairs and they will tell you that cognitively you were on it. But no, you're right. It, it is a developmental puzzle. Mm. The point is, if it was a changing puzzle, you know, what we don't realize is that there's actually laws, there's code that says exactly how tall a stair has to be. There's a range, right? And so stairs become very familiar. But the point I want to make about them is, A, they don't change one generation to the next. So having learned stairs are not easy. When you learn them, you may fall down them as a tiny child, but you do learn them. And then you stop thinking about them. Stairs become so intuitive that, frankly, I know it's stupid, but it is not all that rare that I find myself you know, in a hurry, putting on my shirt as I'm going down the stairs, I still don't fall, right? It's so intuitive that my conscious mind is unnecessary to the process, right? I just automatically walk down the stairs. And the point is, everything else can be like that too, right? Riding a bicycle, not intuitive at first, but learnable, and then it becomes so intuitive you couldn't even explain how you do it to somebody, mm. right? It would say you would have to strain to think about what it is that you're actually, you know, do you realize that as you ride a bicycle, you're constantly falling off and steering very slightly in the direction that you're falling and that's why you don't fall? No, you never think it. Mm. But, that, I mean, that is exactly the tension that we introduce in the first chapter of the book and then return to near the end between culture and consciousness, right? That when you are fully in your conscious mind learning how to do something, either because you were child and you're learning how to do everything, or because you've decided to branch out into a new way of thinking or a new way of doing as an adult, you're in your conscious mind and everything has to be thought through. And sometimes explicit directions are helpful and sometimes they're really not. You know, we, we used to, in our teaching, we play, we'd we played frisbee with our students, and you know the idea that you can exactly describe what it is, how you stand, and how you hold the frisbee. For some people, that works, but by and large, a few pointers, and then it's practice, and then they have to do it and do it and do it until it becomes subconscious, and then it goes into what we are calling in the book the cultural layer, and that's where you are in flow. That's mm -hmm. where if you do get asked explicitly, tell me what it is that you're doing, then you'll lose it. Then you may be more likely to throw a bad, for, you know, make a bad throw, or you know, come off your bike in a way that you weren't intending. Right? That's that is being pulled out of the flow back into beginner's mind, as it were, uh, is really challenging. Another way to, to say this is the conscious mind is, A, the most uniquely human thing that we have, mm -hmm. and it, it is a gift. The problem is a world that we are ill-suited to occupies the conscious mind on nonsense, right? Yeah. On the font that you are making some pro forma communication on behalf of your employer to some person that you don't really wish to be communicating with, right? That is a pointless waste of consciousness. So the question is, can we structure our environments so that our conscious minds are free to engage things that are worthy of them rather than having to be used on the mundane puzzles that we are constantly faced with because technology has changed the world out from under us? 
the idea of being pulled out of the flow, I mean, it, it feels like that's what needs to happen to us. Some sort of a rug pull to make us realize that, hey, make this strange again. See it as something that is odd and other and weird and non-natural. Because as you both wonderfully described, we're born into these cultures, we're born into these environments, and we never question the operating system that underlies our lived reality because it was our parents' generation who went through the same struggles to get a job, to pay rent, to pay taxes, these inevitable things, and then they went through and died. But there's wonderful things about having a, a capitalist system that at least ties nation states together so that war doesn't seem like such a good idea. But also there are terrible things about having a, a capitalist society that doesn't allow, as Brett's saying, for individuals to truly thrive and use the consciousness in ways they should and, and could. But will it ever be possible without some form of collapse to be able to escape the environment that we're currently in? Do we have to go to the extremity and not just potentially destroy some human beings in the process, but by destroying some human beings, potentially destroy the process through which we're creating the environment that we're currently in. I had a, a beautiful thing recently, which was about the Fermi paradox. And then in the Fermi paradox, it's the, as you guys know, it's the discussion of whether aliens exist. And it's, it's possible that we've never interacted with aliens because aliens never get past the state whereby they survive the technological advances that are required to get off of planet Earth. They basically destroy themselves before they develop spaceships. I had a wonderful inverse argument for the Fermi paradox, which was perhaps the reason we haven't met aliens is because they realized that creating an extractive corporate capitalist environment was the most terrible thing that they could possibly do. And they don't have any billionaires to go to space. And they're quite happy living in relationship with nature that they've never developed developed the desire to get off world because the world that they exist on is a heavenly one. So why would they want to go anywhere else? I mean, do we need to get to that stage? Do we actually need to realize that, hey, maybe this is as good as it's going to get and perhaps stepping back a little might not be such a bad thing? Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Fermi paradox. And I've, I've considered a number of the possible reasons that uh, Fermi and others have proposed. I think the issue I would take with this new possible framing mm. that you introduce is that it's a conflation of two things. Mm. It's a conflation of sort of an extractive, uh, let's just stick with extractive because, you know, I think, you know, capitalist will happen everywhere that you end up with uh, complex social economic systems on, on any other planet. But the level of extraction that we are doing that is unsustainable mm. is on Earth at this moment, certainly tied up in many of the attempts to get off planet. But that ne need not be. And so the desire to get off planet, the desire to know what other worlds might look like, that I think will be inherent in any complex life form. That is exploration. That is what you know Brett has called a number of times the explorer modes that all evolved life experiences. And certainly, you know, the, the desire for discovery, the desire for exploration, which are different but related. And many scientists, I, I would hope that all scientists have that desire for discovery and that many of us, regardless of scientists or not, have the desire for exploration. And so we need not tie the desire to know what else is out there 
and to actually have a better understanding of the huge the huge universe or at least the galaxy that we live in mm-hmm. with the extractive processes that happen to be the instantiation that we're living with. I do think it's a conflation. I also think that we need to tease apart something. If we call our system capitalist and we recognize that it is extractive and exploitative and ultimately extremely dangerous, then we may miss the fact that it is also the root of the prosperity that ultimately, if we do figure out how to liberate ourselves, we will all benefit from. And I think the way to to view it is markets are very good at certain things, and they're absolutely appalling at other (laughs) things. And what you want to do is point them at those things that they are uniquely positioned to accomplish. And I would argue that basically markets are the best mechanism we have ever found to figure out how to accomplish something. But they are terrible at telling us what to do, right? What they do is they explore our defects and they sell us stuff we don't need and they cause us to be dissatisfied in order that we are motivated to buy. And if you can shut down the one part while leaving the other part intact, it's the best of both worlds. So again, the toughest lesson of the book is it's neither one nor the other. One does not want to reject markets. That would be a devastating error. On the other hand, one doesn't want to embrace them as the solution to everything because they are so good at solving certain problems. You want to point them at those problems that they are capable of addressing and not others. And the question is, do we have the collective will to do it? And I would also just point out that this desire to explore, what a shame it would be if we did become perfectly satisfied to live here on Earth and not know. I mean, especially if there is biology out there in the universe, to not know what another instance of biology looks like would be tragic. If we had the capacity to see it and we just didn't bother, that would be uh, an indictment of our species, I would argue. Yeah, no, just to respond to that, there's nothing within our solar system uh, that we should be shooting for. Mm. There's nothing of interest there. Not to say that people won't try to make colonies on Mars or the moon. But when, you know, when Brett and I are talking with, with joy about the possibility of finding mm. other complex life in the universe and other places to be, we're talking about much, much farther afield, yeah. you know, with, with tools that we do not yet have and imagining other planets that have entirely different evolutions of life that may in fact, that would be very likely to use all the same elements, of course, because that's what elements are, and also evolving via natural selection, because that also is going to be a law of the universe. But the particular instantiation, the particular chemical formulations, whether even carbon is the backbone, Mm. maybe not, right? So finding out what's out there and desiring to move there and make a living for ourselves there are actually different questions. They are. And I would also point out there is an argument to be made. Uh, My brother makes the argument that it may be that access to different physics puts these very remote places in proximity on a shorter timescale than we can imagine. But given what we understand, we're not talking about anything that we expect to live to see. Yeah, of course. Right? But the question is one of humanity giving up on the idea of finding out what other life would even look like. I mean, you know, let's put it this way. If you just simply compare, let's say, the mammals of most of the world with the mammals of Australia, it tells you something about how different things can be. And that's within mammals, 
right? Yeah. So the question is, what would an entirely other tree of life or multiple trees of life could conceivably exist on the same planet? What would that look like? Kangaroos are foreign enough. Yeah. And this uses all the same stuff. Kangaroo is a funny <laughs> deer, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you two are so wonderfully comfortable with contradiction. And it's great to hear how the reason to go to something like outer space is because of this desire for discovery that humanity has. But also it can be seen as a continuation of the sorts of frontiers that you warn against in the book. It's a, it's a continuation of the geographical frontier. Basically, humans have been oh. everywhere on this planet Earth. Well, there's nowhere else to colonize. So I guess we'll colonize space and it's mind-boggling to me that people actually find the idea of colonizing space almost offensive in this day and age. I think the word is now, you're not allowed to use the word colonization when, <laughs> That's you, right. when you refer to space. And that was a new one on me recently when someone uh, kicked back on the podcast to say, hey, you're not supposed to talk about colonizing <laughs> space. But, but the argument is- Were they aware that there's no one there? No, but what if they, yeah, that's a really good point. What if no one's there? We're not colonizing anybody. We're just borrowing the resources of another, an another planet. But it does a little bit of the space argument does fall into those three frontiers that you, you talk about in the book, the geographical frontier, the technological frontier, and the transfer frontiers, which are all driven by human beings' desire and almost obsession with growth. And the sort of growth we're talking about really is economic growth. And when we think about these growth imperatives, they do inform the bedtime stories we tell ourselves about the future. Because if we believe that growth is tied to those three things Adam Smith talked about, land, labor, and capital, we can see those expressed in the mimetic desires for certain sorts of futures. When it comes to the geographical frontier being limited, i.e. there's no more land, we start talking about virtual reality. And as we have been talking about here, space, we go, oh, no, 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 we can create, we can digitize land and create infinite land inside of a server rack somewhere. When we talk about the limitations of, of labor, well, we go, well, we can just create robots. We don't need human labor anymore. We'll, we'll have robots do all the labor. And when we talk about capital, we go, well, there's a limitation of capital. We'll go, no, 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 we can digitize that too. We will create Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and we'll create infinitely growing forms of capital. And, and all of those stories don't allow us to divorce from those three frontiers, the geographic the technological and the transfer. And you argue in the book that in actual fact, we should uh, at least slightly pump the brakes with our obsession with growth and move towards something called the fourth frontier. So so why the fourth frontier and, and why should we not look for exponential growth as the thing that's going to take us into the future? That was a great setup. Yeah, that was a, it was <laughs> a great setup. I do want to adjust one thing about it. Please. Human beings are obsessed with growth, no doubt about mm -hmm. it. But so is every other living creature. Right. And okay. this is an important thing to understand. So if you have a sexually reproducing creature, mm. on average, that creature can expect to produce two offspring that survive to reproduce. Because on average, that creature will live in a population that is neither growing nor shrinking. It's hovering around carrying capacity. And so replacement is what they can expect. But imagine a creature in a population where two was the number of offspring that they would expect to produce who flies over a difficult mountain range and finds a hospitable valley on the other side in which there are no creatures of that type, right? That creature might leave a thousand offspring. And so the point is that growth in population is evolutionary success. That's what it looks like. 
and it feels very positive. The creature that finds the valley in which it has no competitors has had a stunning success. So the human version of this, where we get obsessed with economic growth, is a special case of something biologically general. One way to get there, geographical frontier. Next way to get there is technological frontier, where one takes something geographical and makes more of it. So a certain number of individuals can live as hunter-gatherers on a given piece of territory. If they engage in farming, the number of individuals might go up by orders of magnitude. So they didn't find any new land, but it is as Mm. if they did. The third frontier is transfer, where a creature addicted to growth can't find any new place to go and doesn't have access to some new technology that would allow them to make more with less. And so they steal it from someone else. And we label this frontier more or less as a warning. And the idea is the tragedies of history mostly look like people faced with austerity who figure out who has resources that they can't defend, and they go after them, and they come up with all kinds of excuses for why they do it. But the point is, it's the way to bootstrap something that feels like growth when there's no growth to be had. And our point about the fourth frontier is that once you recognize that we are addicted to growth for evolutionary reasons that are truly ancient, and that that's not going to go away, there's a question of, do we want to have tragedy after tragedy, atrocity after atrocity? Or do we want to engineer a system that satisfies our desire for growth without having to find anything new? And this is conceivable, right? Mm -hmm. It may sound utopian. It is not. We are anti-utopian. But if I describe a state of permanent spring-like weather, I sound like I've described something utopian. And yet that characterizes the building you live in right? We don't violate any laws of physics. There's nothing mysterious about how we do it. But the point is we create permanent spring inside your house because that's the desirable way to live. And the question is, can we create something that feels like growth, that satisfies human beings, that liberates them to do the things that are truly worth our time and our conscious effort while freeing us from having to figure out where we're going to extract the next resource that we can turn into stuff? This is possible, but it is not automatic. We have to recognize that this is a puzzle that needs to be solved, that we don't know enough to solve it. We can't blueprint it. We make the argument in the book that we will have to navigate there. We will have to prototype our way there. Mm -hmm. And the bad news is that's going to be a long process. Nobody alive today will live to see the fourth frontier realized. On the other hand, as soon as we start navigating there, things begin to get better. It will feel like growth right away as we approach this. And we see lots of things that lean in this direction. Cryptocurrency does suggest a way of liberating us from the horrors of fiat currency. Uh, Electric cars do liberate us from having to fight wars and extract, you know, mucky resources from deep beneath somebody else's territory. So we are seeing hints that we have the kind of uh, capacity to build the fourth frontier, but we have to recognize it as as a problem first. Is it a uniquely Western problem? Should we start realizing that in the West, our, our, the partisan nature of our Western democracy, this tie that we have to whether we're left or on the right, it, it basically mutes our value system and and makes our value system purely about policy and stops our ability to think 
truly about the future. China has a 10, 50-year plan. Western democracies, Britain, America, we have a four-year plan at best. I'm almost, I almost look at China with some form of, of envy. They, they've almost got it right. And we're so tied with fighting with each other over the stupid situations of identity politics or whatever else it is. We spend our time uh, weakening our democracies internally without the impact of any external nation. Should we accept that the the future that you're talking about is one that won't be built by Western civilization, will be built by the East? Let's we hope don't need not. to accept it, but it is possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think China is clearly engaged in what you're talking about. I, I wish somebody had founded a new nation uh, rather than us being relegated to calling it China, because China is obviously a very ancient civilization, and it had exactly the the opposite instinct for literally thousands of years, right? In fact, it, as I understand it, dismantled its own fleet of sailing ships rather than uh, go and colonize the new world. So, I mean, at some level, the U.S. is to the U.K. 250 years ago, uh, what China is to the West now. So, mm -hmm. you know, it looks like it's doing something different, but it's just doing the same thing with modern tools. So, well, you know, you, I mean, it's obviously an imperfect analogy, but, you know, there are ways in which these transfer, these transfer of resource frontiers are engaged throughout history in ways that look different, but are actually simply, when it comes down to it, transfer of resource frontiers. Well, we can't afford to wait. We can't afford the descent into tyranny that's coming. Mm. So in some sense, we have to shut China down. My concern is that China has actually discovered or evolved the solution to a problem that used to reign in totalitarian states yeah. that looked something like China does now. And that's probably a discussion for, <laughs> for, another, for a different time. But you can't have a world of fourth frontier nations and other nations. Yeah. On the other hand, because a fourth frontier would satisfy the insatiable desire to find new growth. It would be, in some sense, like the way the cell phone has taken over the world. Nobody needed to dictate to anybody that they needed to get a cell phone. The cell phone did so many things for you mm. that everybody adopted it because it enhanced their life. And of course, they invited the wolf in because the business model behind the cell phone is predatory. But the same idea you know, it has to spread because it is desirable to participate in a fourth frontier world rather than be something that is imposed on anybody. And it is unclear that we are even willing to recognize the problem that is posed by China. Mm. And I, I wonder if the conversation we need to have globally is one about what has China discovered, right? Has it discovered a mechanism? I'm not sure that it is even right to call China communist, even on the inside, because that's not really how it functions. But it is authoritarian, mm. right? It has engaged in a kind of uh, planned economy authoritarianism inside its borders while behaving in a ruthless capitalist fashion pointed outwards. And that may indeed be a, a magic formula from the point of view of accruing and wielding power. Mm. It is not a magic formula from the point of view of liberating human beings to do what they are actually good at and what is worth 
their time. And in some sense, that's the argument we have to make. It's not that China is incorrect. Obviously, it's quite correct about certain things. It's quite correct about how to accomplish something. But uh, it is, in some sense, philosophically in breach of contract with our species because it subjugates as, as a matter of a course. And I mean, this kind of brings us full circle, mm. right? You know, if, if what China is doing is successful and therefore an evolutionarily stable strategy, that is not the same thing as saying, therefore it's good. Yeah. Right. There are plenty of evolutionarily stable strategies out there, like genocide, like rape, like being predatory outside of your own borders in order to accrue more and more for the people inside of your own borders, of which there are many examples throughout history, which have been functional, but that doesn't make them right. Now, we must have evolved a moral compass for a reason. But there is one last question that, that I have, because like the new atheists, I've always considered you both to be new progressives. The new <laughs> atheists and are not in vogue anymore, but the new progressives, on the other hand, folks like you are, are very much in vogue. But how does one be truly progressive in the 21st century? How do you balance conservative and liberal positions? And how do you integrate both modern and ancient wisdom? What is your advice for an audience who wants to live in, in the comfortable contradictions that both you two live in? I, I would say there's a couple of things. First of all, I would say this uh, new progressivism I love uh, it. That, well, <laughs> no? I, I would argue there's a better <laughs> way. Uh, a, a better term? A better term. Okay. Your other left. Oh. All right. Your other left. Well, if you keep taking lefts, you end up full circle. I've always liked Steve Fuller's <laughs> idea, Professor Steve Fuller's idea of moving away from left-right politics towards up-down politics. Uh, perhaps that's more a comfortable place to be. Techno-progressive versus techno-conservative. In your case, precautionary versus proactionary. You, you need both of those tensions to live in a prosperous society. Left and right just ends up with us arguing with each other over silly Yeah, things. no, I'm, 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 being, uh, I'm being ironic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, not that left. Your other left oh, okay. just strikes me as right based on the modern insanity that one finds uh, <laughs> on the, the mainstream left. But anyway, the, the short answer to your question mm -hmm. is that there are a couple things that have to be recognized, or like literally two. One is that the dynamism and productivity of the West that have been so spectacularly successful at liberating human beings, which really ought to be the objective of the exercise, that that dynamism does not come from one side or the other. It comes from a tension between two opposed forces. Uh, you know, the, this is the way biology works too. You have muscles that extend your arm and muscles that retract them. And, you know, the magic isn't in, on one side or the other, it's both. We have the desire to solve problems. That's a progressive desire. And we have the unintended consequences that come along with solution making. And the desire to resist those unintended consequences is fundamentally conservative, right? The conservatives aren't right. The progressives aren't right. At the moment, conservatives are defending the gains made by progressives of the past who were correct, right? <laughs> the radicals of the past were correct about many things, and now conservatives are defending those insights against modern leftists, mm. which is a, you know, that's a natural feature of history. But the point is, this isn't a victory for conservatism. It's not a victory for liberalism. It's a victory for the system that balances those two things. And so the question, the thing that we have to settle is where in history are we? 
are we at a moment where things are so good, Steven Pinker style, that the right thing to do is to conserve the system that we have? Or are things messed up enough that we have no choice but to change them, to fix them, right? And the problem is- We don't know. Well, <laughs> we just, I'm afraid we do know. We do? The reason that we are on the left, the reason that you're calling us progressives- is that the fourth frontier is an argument for absolutely radical transformation of the way we live. Why? Is it because we don't recognize how good things are? No, it's because we can't stay here. Yeah, okay. This isn't safe. It's not, it's not a long-term plan. And so, so the point is, look, we are arguing for radical change. We are not unaware of how dangerous that is. And that is, I think, the hallmark of the modern progressives that you're going to going to be discovering is that it's a question of needing to change, not being hungry for change for its own sake, right? What we have is an excellent prototype. It tells us many of the things that work. We can also see many of its defects, but we really just don't have a choice. Radical change is coming, whether it is imposed on us by the limits of the planet, or we decide to take control of it and move forward in a rational way. But you don't want to do that without conservatives playing their role too, and being eagle-eyed in looking for the unintended consequences that will arise as a result of the radical change we have no choice but to engage in. And hopefully, we can find the adults in both camps who are ready for that job because neither one's going to do it alone. What I love about you both is that you can playfully engage with the contradictions between culture and consciousness, East and West, left and right, liberal, conservative, modern and ancient. And, and you both represent not just a way of, of being human, but fundamentally doing human. And for that, I want to thank you both for being on the Futures Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was marvelous and uh, look forward to the next one. Thank you to Brett and Heather for revealing ways to combat the incompatibility between consciousness and culture. You can find out more by purchasing their new book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.